The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie Happy Wednesday. George Hook here uh, with The Right Hook on Newstalk. Here are some of the best bits that you might have missed on today's programme. But I'm joined now in the studio by the People Before Profit TD uh, for Dunleary, Deputy Richard Boyd Barrett. Deputy Boyd Barrett, welcome to the programme. Thanks very much, George. Now, I really should know, given I'm your constituent, but is is it Dunleary it is? It is Dunleary, yeah. yeah. Because it used to be Dunleary Rat Down. No, Dunleary Rat Down for, for council purposes is, is the one area, but for ele- general election constituencies, it's two. So there's Dunleary right. and then there's, there's Rat Down, okay. or what used to be South Dublin. So this is a, uh, a pretty uh, affluent neighbourhood, So, uh, uh, but there are also, as we well know, areas of, of deprivation. Um, but the question of inheritance tax, a couple of listeners, and it prompted me asking you to come in, a couple of listeners said, get your man Boyd Barrage in here. Why is he supporting an increase in the inheritance tax threshold of two fifty to five hundred thousand, which will only which will only benefit the super rich? This isn't a program for government. What are your thoughts on that? Well look, I mean I understand the concerns. I genuinely do, and people before profit haven't made a final decision on this. I was just I was asked for comment at the weekend. Uh, and what I said was that we probably wouldn't be jumping up and down in opposition to it, although we, we what we did say is that we would want to balance any move like this by a clawback, essentially, from the wealthier sections of society who might inadvertently benefit too much or excessively from it. But, uh, but a house of 500,000 is hardly owned by the super rich well, that's today. The, that is the point. I mean, there are council houses or former council houses in my area, in Monkstown Farm, in Sally Noggin, uh, in Shankill and so on, that are now, because of property values, uh, now worth up to or close to 500,000. And the people inside those houses could be and often are on extremely low incomes or unemployed. Uh, So to hit people like that who might pass on the family home to their kids with a massive tax bill is well, punitive. let's look. Uh, sorry, do you mind me looking yeah. at the very constituents who've talked about? Because I yeah, think they're yeah, quite a good yeah. example. Yeah. Right? You have somebody on low income in Monkstown Farm, right? But a former councillor is now worth 500,000. If the old threshold were applied, and it's the normal thing of every parent that I know is to hand on the house like to their children or yeah. child. If the, if the inheritance tax remained at 250, what would happen to your constituent then? They would be hit. I mean, in, in many cases, they would be hit with a bill of sixty or seventy thousand, uh, which they clearly wouldn't have. In many cases, they wouldn't. Uh, so, yeah, it is a problem, and that's why we're not jumping up and down in opposition. I have to be honest and say, also, though, George, that on the list of priorities that we need to address, this isn't probably the biggest one. No, right? I accept that. Uh, there's a lot bigger ones. But and how would the super rich necessarily benefit? Because the super rich presumably own a house which is a million or two million. Yeah, that that is the point. And but because the way the law and this is where there is a problem with it, and we need to look at it, right, and uh, p- probably amend it, but also pay for it through other progressive taxation measures on the better off. You see, let's say somebody did have a house worth two or three million, <clears throat> they could leave all of their kids 
500,000. Let's each. say if they had four or five kids, they could it. leave every one of them 500,000 euros each. And there's each. your two million. And there's your two million and they wouldn't pay a cent of tax. And that is a problem if you're talking about people who have big money oh, and okay. big property assets. So oh. what would you do? Well, I, I, I mean, we have to discuss this in detail and I think we're going to have to think about amendments if the, if the government bring in a bill because on the one hand, we do think that people who are just trying to pass on the family home sh- uh, and are, we're talking about modest or average valued homes should be able to do so without being hit with a massive tax bill. But on the other hand, we want to capture that other group who could get a big windfall who should have to pay some tax in the interests of well, equality. The problem for you, though, is that the super rich are going to have the best tax account in Ireland uh, who are going to find a way of getting around it anyway. Uh, and this is why we've always argued and it's a bit like the argument about the property tax George and it's why we oppose the property tax because on the one hand the property tax could potentially hit the big property owner but it will hit to a far greater extent the people on low and middle incomes uh, and we've always said that what you need is a wealth tax that captures wealth above and beyond the family home uh, and we should have that and also we think income in excess of a threshold. We've always used the figure 100,000 because we think people earning less than that are not stinking rich. Some of them are well off. Some of them are, are, are absolutely not well off. So we think people in excess of that should have to pay sh- a, a sharp increase in But uh, we're at... I, I, it's not why I asked you to come in, but it's worth following it through. I mean, we're already paying 53%, though. And, like, these are people who aren't... Like, we reach the high tax rate faster than almost any Western nation. I, I think the marginal rate for people who are, are on sort of middle incomes is another issue. And, and, and you could make a reasonable argument. And that's why we're not for hammering taxes on people who are on 60 or 70,000, right? But I think once you get up, really, certainly when you get up over 100,000, you're talking about people who are very comfortable and uh, they're certainly in a far more comfortable position than the 65% of workers who are on less than €35,000 a year and are struggling to pay the bills. So I don't think they deserve tax breaks and in fact I think they could afford to pay a bit more. Okay. You see, why people get it wrong and why it can be difficult for you because it appears as if people for before profit are kind of supporting something untenable. Those poor people, the listener says, inheriting a 500,000 house and then can't uh, afford 75,000 tax. The point about it is you've inherited a house, but that's only bricks and mortar. You're now living in that house, right? And you have to find 75,000 cash. That's the problem for people in average incomes that you're talking about and that you represent. Yeah, I mean, that's the point. Where is somebody, where's your person amongst the farm? How are they going to access 75,000? Well, that, that, that is the point I'm making, George. Now, I mean, your, your listener is right to be concerned about people who might be very well off. They could be on high incomes and who could get a big uh, windfall and not have to pay any tax on it. So we have to look at that. I, so I would be very conditional in my uh, attitude towards this. But I can tell you for a fact, and this does happen, and it happens quite regularly, and a lot of people in my area would be hit with people who are living in council houses in Monkstown Farm and Sally Noggin who would not be on uh, high incomes but happen to live in a house that's very valuable. The same house if you were in, you know, the countryside or even the west of Dublin would be worth a lot less and you wouldn't be hit with any taxes. But people 
in council houses that they happen to have bought could be hit very, very hard and they wouldn't have the money. In, in, in or couldn't access it more importantly. They couldn't. They wouldn't get a, they wouldn't get a bank a mortgage on it. They wouldn't get a loan to that extent. Yeah, if they absolutely. were, for example, on social welfare, if they were on a very low income, as many people are, earning minimum wage or less than average industrial wage, they just wouldn't be able to pay it. The other issue that's been popping up, which I thought you'd have a view on, is the issue of uh, paying for your green bin. What's your position yeah, on Yeah, well, that? I see, this is really problematic. You know, I mean, let's set aside for a minute the debate about bin charges when they first came in. Yes. Except to say that one of the justifications at the time for the introduction of waste charges was that it would encourage recycling. So, in other words... You paid for putting stuff in the black bin, but you didn't pay anything to put stuff in the green bin. And so there was a certain logic. I mean, I disagreed with waste charges, but there was a certain logic to saying if you recycled a lot, you paid less. Now, suddenly all of that has changed. So now you pay if you put it in the black bin and you pay if you put it in the green bin. So you might as well just put it all in the black bin Exactly. Now, I mean, Alan Kelly would say, ah, but you're paying slightly less in the green bin. But in fact, that's not guaranteed because in the uh, statutory instrument he brought in, he gave minimum charges for the black and the green bin, but there's no maximum charges. The private waste companies, we rang some of them up last week, they can potentially charge what they like. And you see, what I think is happening here is that the private waste companies are actually fed up that people are recycling so much. People are putting more stuff in the green. The private companies can't make any money out of it because people are recycling. <coughs> so they decide, oh, we better charge them for the recycling as well. Uh, and of course, the people are paying on the double because they're, they will then be paying a charge to the private company and they will also uh, be making profits for the private company by doing them the service of separating their waste. Uh, so this is a move just to benefit the private waste companies. I mean, if the, if the, if waste uh, management was in public hands, this wouldn't come into play at all, because the, 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 a public body would say, "Great, people are recycling. That's good." Uh, but for the private companies, the fact that people are recycling is not good. But it, it, just for instance, therefore, it, it, you would uh, forget about charges because you've already made that point clearly. Um, do you also think, therefore, a waste disposal should have remained in in the public arena rather than the private arena? A hundred percent. And but you see, how, like you, you're, you've been a long time councillor in Dunleary. Yeah. How did they pay? Did they then pay for it? What well, was the see, rationale behind see, moving this, it? See, this this is where unfortunately it does come back to the earlier argument. You see, at the time, people said, "Oh, we should pay a little for our ways to encourage recycling." That was the argument. And what we warned at the time was that, in fact, once you brought a charging mechanism in for waste, it inevitably would go in this direction because profit would trump any environmental concerns and privatisation would follow. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. Uh, And, by the way, that is relevant to the issue of water because if you – the idea of water charges is to conserve water usage – introducing water charges everywhere else in the world, and it'll happen here too if we don't stop them, leads to privatisation. And once the private companies come in, if they, if people are conserving too much water, they st- then start to charge you for water going out. And if you look at the way the, the, the uh, charges are constructed, they can do that. And that's what's happened in the rest of the world. So if people cut back on the amount of clean water they use coming in, the private company then starts to charge them extra for the water that's going out. Uh, and 
it's the problem with privatisation. But user charges lead directly onto that. And that's why I think these things should be municipally controlled. But, but if, we, if we do that, I mean, because I knew you'd have a lot to say, that's why I asked you to come in. Like, it, it, the, the, the old labour, like, of Michael Foote in Britain yeah. and so on, yeah. that labour, Tony Benn and yeah. everything, that was like... Everything was public, you know, like the mines were public and the railways were public and everything was public. Does that work in the the modern economy? Can you have that uh, state-owned everything? Well, I mean... Think about this. When you're thinking about basic things, I mean, we can have an argument, George, and I probably would disagree or may disagree with you on the efficiency of the market in certain areas, right? But when you're talking about vital public services and infrastructure, I really don't think there's any argument for privatisation. And I'll just give you the obvious examples. Water, waste and housing. In the 1950s in this country, when we were poor, we could provide social housing. We 1930s, had a, when we were poorer. Yeah, yeah, we when we were poorer. Uh, we were able to provide a decent waste collection system and the infrastructure wasn't as bad as it is today in water ter- in terms of the water infrastructure. It, is, it has got worse. Uh, but it was it was much better then. And indeed, we had other things like public swimming pools, right, which are all closed. Well, a lot of them anyway closed down uh, since. Like, well, you'd know having yeah. made your name on yeah. Blackrock Bath. But yeah. th- that's the point. So why why was it we could afford them then? And it was because even conservative governments in that period understood there were certain things you just have to have. And they included basic infrastructure and social and affordable But you're forgetting housing. one thing, though, I think. Or maybe you're not forgetting it, but it just yeah. hasn't come into the argument. I actually don't even know. Like, we could argue for hours about lots of things but I believe the vital services should be public right you know I don't think trains are are better in Britain than than now than they used to be I don't believe that Um, so therefore um, whether you pay for water or waste or whatever it should be in the public domain but once they took away rates, I mean, you were a councillor. Uh, still a councillor? No, no, you right. can't, you you can't, can't do a dual right. thing. Yeah. But you as a councillor would have known you were beholding to central government for your income. Whereas if there were rates, which there were, so like when I bought my house in Foxhock Park, the rates were, were greater than my mortgage. Yeah, but I mean... That but I paid rates because I got all the services you're talking about. Yeah, and look, I mean, I think... But you're okay. You would have been okay with me paying rates for them, but you're not okay with me paying check for them. Well, I mean, I'm not advocating going back to rates because there was a problem and indeed it would have hit, whether it hit you, George, I'm not sure, but it would have hit people in our area and in other urban areas. Because the rates were applied to the value of the house, you mean? Regardless of uh, income. And this is going to become a big issue with the property tax. Uh, and uh, I think it's going to hurt a lot of people. But sure. Sorry, like, but there is another way, George. Is my yeah. point, and uh, I think that the other way is to have a more steeply progressive uh, tax on income, and I think that is fair. Uh, because it is according to your ability to pay and that we fund local services. And certainly they need to be ring-fenced in that regard. But, I mean, the property tax is effectively rates, and in fact, water yeah. and rates, is rates back. But are we getting extra public services for it? We're not, actually. I mean, because what they did was, for every cent that came into the local authorities in extra property tax, central funding was reduced for every yes, cent. Yes, no, but I cent don't agree cent. with central funding. Yeah. I don't agree with Jack Lynch in what he did. He destroyed it. But, but the point is, 
because surely when you talk about the people you represent, right, um, or, or anybody who with inability, isn't it surely not beyond the ability of government to create a position that if you can't pay, you don't pay? So in other words, like it, this is why I think there should be means testing for children's allowance, right? That yeah, I know, like it's too big an argument. You don't want to go there, but but what I'm saying is there should be a correlation between how much money you earn and what you have to pay. Nobody ever thought I believe I'm certain of it. Nineteen thirties, when Sean T. O'Kelly was building, I think twelve thousand houses a year. Nobody was expecting people to pay for it. That's right. And, I mean, they paid according to... I mean, the, 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 a council rent system currently is, is a very progressive rent system because it's based yeah. on your income. And if you, earn, if you start to earn more, your rent goes up. Yeah. Uh, and, in fact, that's how rents could be and should be controlled in, yes. in a whole uh, number of areas. And people understood that. Whether they were Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael or Labour in the 30s and 40s and 50s, they understood that. But the, the problem, George, honestly, I think, and you've, whether you, you may agree with me on this, even though you're of the Fine Gael persuasion, privatisation has gone too far in the last 20 years, really since Thatcher. They have started to privatise and monetize and sort of make into a profit-making enterprises things that should never have been brought into that sphere. Things like housing, water, waste. You know, I mean, if you go back to the 19th century and Charles Dickens and all that, right, or Dublin for that matter, the 19th century, people were dying because basic things weren't provided to everybody as a matter of right, like water, like proper sewage and sanitation. And the whole of society decided at that time, listen, we're just going to have to provide these things from the collective pool of taxation and wealth. And that's what was done. Uh, And we're moving in my opinion, backwards now by, by moving to privatise these things. I'm starting to get very worried. <laughs> I'm starting to agree with you. This is, this is deeply worrying uh, to be agreeing with uh, Richard Boyd Barrett of people before profit. profit. But the right hook on Monday to Friday between 4.30 and 7 does bring us some uh, different uh, uh, ideas and uh, a listener says so the harder you work the more tax you pay no the more money you earn it's bloody straightforward surely alright my thanks to my guest we'll have uh, lots more what did David say to me I have a tweet here nothing worse than G-hook kissing ass of a left wing politician <laughs> <laughs> what do you think uh, we'll have an argument the next time I come in George <laughs> alright thanks very much The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie According to an Institute for Public Policy Research in the United Kingdom, all secondary schools should have a mental professional on site at least one day a week. This is in order to combat increased demand from young people with mental health problems. Brian Mooney is a guidance counsellor, educational uh, columnist with the Irish Times. He joins me in the studio. Brian Mooney, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. Now, the first thing is um, that do children have mental problems in school? Every human being has mental problems. Ah, yeah, but children are talking. Yes, right? absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we all experience stress. I mean, we probably in this country have some of the, unfortunately, highest self-harm rates in Western Europe. And therefore, the support that young people require and need in second level schools and in all educational institutions is vital. 
which is why I feel as a guidance counsellor deeply privileged of the opportunity to work with young people to help them deal with that. But if that is true, well, let's do a comparison at the moment, right, if you don't mind. Sure. If you compare, uh, the, the, because I spoke to the six years in press, sure. talk, la, a hundred of them, yes. last Thursday, okay. right? And compare the 2016 press cohort of a yes. hundred yes. with the 40 or 50 odd of 1959. Right. Now, nobody in 1959 said, there's a fellow in our class has mental problems. Yes. Did that mean we didn't recognize it or there was less stress around? There probably was less stress around and we also didn't recognise it. Okay, all right. So there is more stress around there and is. there's better recognition. Yes. So do we now need a psychiatrist in every school one day a week? Absolutely not. And it would be a pointless exercise because one of the great things about having a guidance counsellor in a school, which I am, is that I'm a qualified in counsellor, I've done my own postgraduate training, I'm a certified therapist, I see students about CAO, I see them about everything and anything. But if a student is suffering from distress, they know they can come into me, they can raise issues, and if it's family bereavement, parent separation, all that sort of stuff, I can deal with all of that myself. I can see them without anybody else knowing that they're in dealing with those difficulties. On the other hand, if they tell me that they're contemplating self-harm or they're in that level of stress, I will immediately report that to the appropriate procedures, get the support the student needs. And a lot of time they will come to you maybe two or three times before they will have the confidence to actually begin to speak about that. The thing is that if you bring in Yes. Right, a fella from the funny farm. Now, I know I'm being crude and I'm using words should be used, but... but You're but, absolutely right, George. If, yeah. you had a, if you had an office which said mental health support services... Yeah. George, I was... What out, child is going to come to nobody, the door? Nobody. This is a... You know, the, the suggestion that you would have mental health professions in school is daft because effectively what they're saying is there's a problem there. This is a UK situation. Let's put mental health professionals. What they need is a guidance counselling service like we had in this country which, of course, as you know, in 2012 was abolished because of cutbacks and we all went back to being subject teachers. But thankfully, in the negotiations for government, Michal Martin put his foot down and said, we are not supporting you unless you restore guidance counselling in schools. And that is now going to happen. It's one of the conditions of government. But, but see, the, the thing is so obvious that if a kid comes in to you, Brian Mooney is the guidance counsellor, he could actually be coming in and talk to you about should he do honours English Correct. and leave it. Nobody knows that he's actually in the middle of a major crisis. Exactly. If he goes in to the funny farm, and yes. I'm sorry for saying it, but, yeah. but I mean, this is how, particularly children. Everybody I mean, in the school would know he's done it within 10 minutes because yes. he'd be seen doing it. Yeah. And he'd be seen coming back to class from the funny farm. So effectively, it ain't going to work. What you need is what we have devised in this country, which is, and I know it came in here from the States in the 60s, and a lot of our officials in the education system distrusted it because they didn't do it in the UK. You know, if, so if they don't the do it in the UK, UK we shouldn't be doing it here. Well, are the UK still not doing it? They don't have guidance counsellors. Really? Which is why they're make, coming up with this suggestion. Oh, yeah. yeah they have somebody to help you with your um, UCAS applications. Your UCAS, that is the university application system, but they, they're not counsellors. They don't have any therapeutic training whatsoever and they literally know how to fill in this form. We are a fully trained postgraduate qualification, upskilled. I have to go to a professional counselling supervisor every six weeks. I have to talk about the cases I'm dealing with as do all guidance counsellors in, in a kind of a support with a trained professional counselling supervisor. Therefore, the system is there. The problem for the last four years and the reports were out yesterday, is that the system, basically when the the cuts came back, 
Rory Quinn said, right, where's the easiest place to make a cut? He didn't want to cut classroom teaching, so he took the guidance counsellors out of their office and said, well, they're gone, put them but back in the But if Rory Quinn cut guidance counsellors, he can't have been a very good Minister for Education. Then. He saw it as the easy cut. And what actually happened, George, was he cut them, so the guidance counsellors were put back into the classroom. Then the children who were experiencing these problems arrived on the principal's door, tears pouring down their face, coming in, and the principal was going, how come I'm getting all this stuff? And then the, the penny dropped. Oh, the guidance counsellors used to deal with this. So gradually, schools have tried to restore. And this year in the budget, the, the budget just gone by, there has been an allocation back to put some guidance counselling back in schools. And now in the programme for government between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, that agreement, guidance counselling is one of the preconditions that it be restored. All right. But in all um, schools. All right. I was in Prez last Thursday. Go on. Right. Fee-paying school. Yeah. High performance school. Yes. Right. Now, um, is there a class divide here? And by class, I mean social class. In other words, that the fee paying schools or the, the better uh, 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 kids who have more money, their parents have more money, they're more likely to have access to this. Well, kind one of, of the effects. Poor kids. Yeah. La- yesterday, the Institute of Guidance Counselors published a report which was all over all the media yesterday. And it basically showed that since the cuts came in 2012, in the DESH schools, the disadvantaged schools, it led to a 30% drop. In the voluntary second, secondary sector, it led to about 25%. And guess what? In the fee-paying schools, there's been an increase in service since 2012. So effectively, when you take away the universal service funded by the state, the fee-paying sector and those schools in prosperous areas that are non-fee-paying will make sure that their sons and daughters are still getting the service because it's important to them. But in the disadvantaged community schools, where effectively the um, same emphasis isn't put on third-level education and progression, the service just disappeared. It was decimated. So effectively, if we want everybody to be treated equally and if we want a fairer society for everybody, we have to put back a universal service available to everybody so that the child in the disadvantaged school has the same chances of progressing to third level as somebody... But but again, what you have here is a Labour minister at that time who who is... who who Labour, who are all about the disadvantaged, they're the ones who damage disadvantaged kids more. I find it extraordinary. But also, I want a mental health professional has gone on to me in terms of using the term funny farm. It's a disgrace. And he's gone back to RTE. Yeah. The point I was trying to make here yes. is that is how the children will view it. Exactly. And they will view it. There's something wrong with this child. I was out in... Isn't I, it true? You're I, an expert. Yeah. Don't children hold much more... Uh, extremist views, if you like, towards their colleagues than adults might do. Absolutely. I, George, I was out in Budapest a couple of years ago talking to the, um, the veterinary faculty and they had hundreds of Irish students out there and they said that a lot of them were experiencing stress. So I told them what the system we had, you know, in Ireland. So then they decided, when I went back, to put up a mental health office. And they kept, the following year when I was back there and they said, P- students aren't using it. And I said, well, take the word mental health off the door and call, you know, support for the students. And of course, they all came through then. 
if, if it's, if, as I say, if it's labelled as mental health, young people will not use the service because they'll feel their peers will be laughing at them. Whereas they can come into my office, they can be talking about, I'm having difficulty with Irish, I'm having difficulty studying, one of my subjects isn't going well, I'm thinking of becoming a vet, or I'm thinking of doing this course in college. Nobody knows what the students coming in and out of my office are doing with, and there's no stigma as such to being seen in there. So therefore, that's how the guidance counselling service in this country is uniquely supportive of young people because you can support them without them having to declare to their mates. But you see, I get another text then from Figure. He's upset as well about my references. The, 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 yes, you have consistently said, and the Budapest thing is an example, that if you put the word mental up there, yes. then they won't come. They won't. they'll be stigmatised. Of course they will. And they won't, and they won't access the service and they won't feel comfortable because effectively they'll think that the minute they come through that door that their friends will be laughing at them and that they will, you know, that they will feel that somehow, you know, that it becomes exposed. And, and a lot of the times, even when they come in to me and the student is talking about something and he's, he's talking to me about an issue that he supposedly has and then he gets up to leave and he's standing at the door and he just turns, oh, by the way, there's just one other thing. And then he opens the real up. Thing comes the real out. thing comes out. The, the, the other thing we talked about, class, um, the, the, um, a lot, in order for people to send their kids very often to, to uh, expensive schools, two parents are working of course, and yeah. two parents are busting a gut uh, to get it. And that's laudable. Yes. But what they are also doing is allowing themselves less time with the child. Yes. So therefore, the, the school very often now has to do jobs that were previously, in my time, handled by parents. But this is, the, so? this is the thing, George, because of the pace at which parents are having to live life now, and both of them working, and maybe the lack of family meals, and everybody's working from their mobile phones, and there's less person-to-person, face-to-face communication, the level of stress is building. And for young people, quite often, this manifests itself initially in, in self-harm, and in feeling depressed and down. And parents feel, I've given you everything. The only thing they can't give them is time. Because yeah, because it's not enough to go to the Dundrum shopping centre yeah. and buy a new pair of runners. Exactly. You actually have to sit down, have a family meal in which you're looking at them and thinking, you know what? He or she, son or daughter, isn't looking the same as well as they did last week. Is there something wrong, love? You know what I mean? But in a lot of families, that kind of context is gone. Yeah, I, I've got into an awful lot of trouble talking about mothers and children already, but so I'll go a bit further. Yes, yeah. <laughs> they, they, you see, in the 1959 yes. Cork and 1959 Ireland, yeah. because there was a marriage bar yes. in every job, yeah. it essentially meant that every married woman was at home. My mother was a civil servant. She's still alive, 93 years of age. And on the day she got married in 1951, she was in the revenue, out of it. My father was a civil servant. She was at home. He was still at work. End of story. No issue. And when we came home to lunch at half past 12, the dinner was on the table. And then we had our dinner and then you went back to school and you had an hour and three quarters for lunch so that everybody could go home for lunch. Parents often, the father often came home for lunch. You know what I'm saying? But that's what makes it, I'm not saying it's better or worse, but what it is, is it was different. It was very different. Now everybody's in their own box, everybody's in their own space, everybody's living in their own, you know, phone. And effectively, there's this comic script, which I saw last year, which was really telling. And it was a picture of a funeral and there's a young person in the coffin and there's two people sitting in the church. And one person says to the other, I'm really surprised. He had a thousand Facebook friends. 
You know what I mean? So th- this reality in which we live this world in which friendship is no longer friendship as you and I knew it as kids. Friendship is somebody accepts you know, an, an invitation to you to be a friend, and people you know, compete with each other to have more and more friends. So you build hundreds and thousands. Whereas of we would have thought, like, if I had three yeah. friends, yeah, I was doing I'm very flying. well. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. But brilliant. but the three friends you had, you still had them forty and, years and, later. Exactly, and you talked to them, and you communicated with them. And if one of the four group before wasn't feeling good, the others knew about it very very fast. Now, because that face to face interaction doesn't happen in a lot of cases, people can go into a very dark place with nobody knowing. But but Miriam says young school children are well able to understand more about mental health than G Hook has given them credit for. I don't think they can. I think a lot of the time they get very isolated. And as their isolation grows, their sense of being able to express, and that's about communication skills and expression skills, lessons. Because so often young people who self-harm never give any verbal indication as to, you know, that they've gone into this very dark place. All right. Thanks so much for joining me. Brian Mooney, guidance counsellor, of course, educational columnist with the Irish Times. Oh, by the way, I've got to do the competition, don't I? I have it here somewhere. Oh, look, it's turned up right at the back of the pile. And it is a marvellous break for two in the heart of Cork City at the Imperial Hotel. They've just spent a ton of money making it smart. It's a drive on a five iron from Patrick Street. It's on the South Mall. Uh, You can go over to the English market, but you're there for two nights. Breakfast every morning, afternoon tea, no less, in the 76 bar with Prosecco or indeed a Bellini. And then the hotel's escape spa has tropical rain and mist brought all the way probably from Burma. Anyway, you'll love it. So, which of the following terms are used to measure mass in the imperial measurement scheme, A, pennies, B, pounds, and C, cents, or C, cents. Text imperial together with your name and answer A, B, or C to 53106. Don't forget, it's a Flynn Hotel, so go to flynnhotels.com. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie it's the right hook with George Hook. Well, um, over a period of time on the program, we've been talking about the damage to footballers of whatever code uh, by playing the game they love. And I had that uh, extraordinary interview with the daughter of the great Jeff Astle, who died, of course, prematurely um, from, many people believe, heading the ball because, of course, he was the greatest header of a ball of his generation. Well, I've come across uh, an extraordinary book and I'm thrilled to discover that it's written by an Irishman, uh, Alan Jernan, author of Retired. What happens to footballer when the game is up? Alan, welcome to the programme. Thanks, George. Uh, you, you, what's your career... Um, I've written about football for the last few years and uh, wrote an article a couple of years back on how professional footballers go bankrupt when they retire, which sparked my interest in what else might happen to them. Um, so, like m- many people in the general public, I would have considered a footballer retires, lives happily ever after with his millions, but transpires a lot of problems that are interlinked uh, that occur, um, whether it be bankruptcy, uh, dealing with injuries, divorce, um, mental health issues, etc. And, and they're all totally interlinked, I found, as well. 
Well, I, I mean, obviously, I've been. I'm, I'm a bit of a campaigner on the issue of mental sure. health, and 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 football, soccer has it because they head the ball. Rugby has it because they they've head on tackles. Um, but the bankruptcy thing, we're not talking about footballers of an era when they were getting paid fourteen pounds a week. Are you talking about people going bankrupt who might be earning a hundred thousand a week? Yeah, well, the, the average wage in the Premier League at the moment is I think forty two thousand uh, per week. Um, and yeah, and um, almost all. I spoke to a lot of players for that chapter, players for that chapter, um, bankruptcy lawyers, insolvency practitioners, and more or less 100% of the bankruptcies involving footballers have been Premier League standard. And what do they do with all that money? That's two million a year by my calculation. Yeah, it's a mixture of, um, I suppose, poor investments, uh, misplaced trust, misadvice, and just not tailoring their spending to their new circumstances when they retire. Now, the the injury thing we get, because injury's been always been around sure. and, and is a problem for footballers, although we're learning more about head injury, but at the same time, injury's been around. When players, the maximum wage was £14 a week, 90% of retired footballers became landlords of pubs. Um, now, that in when you're earning two million a year, presumably you're not a landlord of a pub. But what about um, the fact there's divorce? Now, this great phrase "wags" they all seem to marry women, rather, yeah. you know, who are sort of almost in um, all of the same type. Is there what's the issue? Why uh, divorce? Th- that's the general perception that maybe it's financial reasons and wags, but. Uh, the figures are, are startling, actually. It's one in three professional footballers will be divorced within 12 months of retiring. 12 months? Yes, and three quarters within uh, three years. So I went into it. I know it's crazy figures. I went into it presuming, you know, it's money gra- stereotypical money grabber, gold diggers. But again, I spoke to a lot of ex-players, a lot of their ex-wives, uh, divorce lawyers who specialise in footballers' uh, divorces. And it seems to be mainly the, the players being stuck under the wise feet, going from heroes to zeros underni- overnight and they can't get their head round. You know, they used to be, you know, John the footballer from the age of eight and suddenly they're just John sitting at home and 40 years ahead of them and it's struggling with that. Um, sometimes to replace that buzz, they'll go down to alcohol route or drugs or um, gambling or other addictions and that will just exacerbate the problems in the marriage, I suppose. It's you said to me quite at the beginning, you said... It's interlinked. And as you're speaking, I can see the interlinking um, that if you're running out of money, well, that causes a problem which may then become uh, drug abuse or mm. some other addiction. If if at this, if at you lose, um, you know, your place in the sun where everybody knows you and now nobody knows you and you're at home all the time, I can see how that affects yeah, a marriage. You know, so suddenly that theory of yours of being interlinked, it it becomes quite obvious, really, in a way. Yeah, and, and the ones that seem to, to um, handle the transition best are those that have another passion uh, to pursue after they retire. I spoke to Pat Nevin, who's a pundit now. He's on News Talk quite a bit, I think. But he, he used to be chairman of the PFA, and he suggested that you really need something else that... Um, if football's all you got when that ends, you're you're stuffed. Basically, was his quote. So there is a chapter in it looking at a fresh start where players have gone on to be musicians, artists, vicars. Even um, there's Lee Bowyer who played for Leeds in England, who runs a fishing lake now in France. So 
it seems if you've something alongside football when you retire. It, it, it yeah, happens. but it, this is interesting because the comparison between football as a professional sport and rugby as an amateur sport was dramatic mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I'm sure you've seen that, that iconic picture of uh, Stapleton and Brady and uh, David O'Leary and, interestingly, Johnny Murphy of Greystones Rugby Club yeah. going to the Arsenal's kids. Now, they go to a, a club, best did the same thing, and all footballers do, at 14 years of age, Wayne Rooney and so on, no educational achievement. So, therefore, they know nothing else but course, football. Yeah. Now, the comparison with rugby at that point was that rugby players were doctors, dentists, lawyers, bankers, insurance men. So when rugby ended, they had a career. But, of course, the modern rugby player is now replicating the experience of the soccer player. Yeah, well, even now in professional football, they're taken out of school often at the age of eight by Premier League clubs. So... They'll typically go to school three days a week, so the other two days they're not getting any education. From the age of eight? Yes, and um, at the age of 16, if you're signed to a professional club in England, you have a 2% chance of still playing at 21. So you can see that's 98% of lads who've had dreams, and often their parents as well have seen them as their, their meal ticket or golden ticket, and a lot of them are typically the ones that end up in prison. Like There's 150 ex-footballers in the UK prison system, and 90% of them are under 25, so... They're typically the ones who are earning maybe a grand or two a week when they're 16, 17, 18 and let go by their clubs and are looking to maintain that sort of income and lifestyle. This is a pretty terrifying book. It's, it, it turned out quite bleak, yeah. Um, I went into it just interested as to what becomes typical footballers. As you said, in the old days, they may have just become publicans and you know maybe had a couple of issues. But yeah, it, it turned out quite bleak, to be honest. Were there in this study you did, were there particular sad stories that kind of got to you when you when Yeah, you, I, you mentioned Don Astle earlier and there's a chapter on dealing with injuries and I suppose going back to it, it was looking at players who retired early through injury um, and a lot of them stories were quite bleak as well where all the players nearly I spoke to and I interviewed dozens um, had this age of 35 in their head where if we reach that we're happy but if it ends in your 20s um, it took some of them maybe a decade to get over it where they didn't know it was going to be their last game. Um, that chapter as well, I spoke to Don Assel and Lorraine Assel about her, about their um, husband and father and that was really harrowing, I suppose. I spoke to Yeah, well, times. I mean, it, 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 she said to me when I talked to her on the radio that Jeff was known as the king in, yes, in yeah. West Brom. He was the greatest header yeah. of the ball of probably ever, maybe. He scored as many goes for West Brom and as many games as Wayne Rooney has for Man United. So that's to put it into perspective. And most of those were his head. Yeah, yeah. And the the thing is that, like, she told, he died in front of them. And... Like he was in his early 50s and she saw him on that last day and he looked 100, yeah. she said. I mean, that was terrifying. She she spoke about using his memorabilia and things like that um, to test his memory. And so she'd ask him every day, did a big picture up of him scoring in the FA Cup final, the winning goal, and she'd ask him every day, who's that and what is it? And he'd say, oh, that's me scoring the goal in the FA Cup final. And then just one day it just, he didn't remember, which was terrible. And she and, said, do you remember who you played for? And he couldn't. But Alan, and your book Retired is just, um, it's, it's going to be a great read for everybody interested in football. Um, 
But I still have trouble coming to terms with your bankruptcy statistics, that the average wage is sort of two million, mm-hmm. and there are guys probably earning certainly three times yeah, that, yeah. Uh, and that they can go bankrupt so quickly. Well, in in the period of time I was writing this book, there was almost one well-known former Premier League player and international going bankrupt every week. Like uh, Last November, the Sunday Times covered these film schemes, which were investment schemes, typically in the early noughties, where players, um, you know, it was tax, to avoid tax. And um, they're coming back to buy players now who, you know, would have invested in them in the early noughties. They're retired long ago now and often hit with retrospective taxation for half a million, a million they no longer have it, so um, typically the only thing they can do is go bankrupt. But of course, um, the, the 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 professional boxer um, certainly going back, you know, many decades. There was always the thing that the, the professional boxer had hangers on, mm-hmm. and the great boxers, world champions like Joe Lewis, uh, uh, um, Sugar Ray Robinson, these. It was the hangers-on got all the money. Presumably soccer is a bit like that. Each soccer player is probably supporting about a dozen people. A, f- a few players mentioned that, particularly overseas players who moved their family and entourages over. Um, I, I looked at comparing it as well with American sports where the problems are, seem to be even worse where, and the entourage sort of culture. A few players said that it is creeping into the England game and English game and it can also affect your, your performances obviously in the pitch if you've got... Dozens of people milling around your house and with you all the time to, to keep spending as if they're still earning a lot of them. Thank you so much. The book deserves uh, every success. Just a, It's going to be a fantastic read for anybody who, who watches football on a Saturday afternoon on television and those names that are on everybody's lips now, where they might be just a shoot few short years from now. It's called Retired. What happens to footballers when the game is up? It's Alan Jernan, my guest uh, here on The Right Hook. Alan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, George. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Stupid I'm not lazy I don't want something for nothing, but it's all I can get without... Unemployment, that's what the self-aid video and tomorrow's concert are all about. 30,000 people will pack the RDS for the 14-hour concert. It'll run from midday and the whole event will be broadcast live by RTE Television and in stereo by RTE Radio 2. 27 Irish bands will be taking part, including U2, Elvis Costello, Bagatelle, The Chieftains, and of course Mr. Aid himself, Bob Geldof with the Boomtown Rats. At the same time, in studio, Ireland's second telethon will be accepting pledges for money and jobs to try and cut the jobless total of 230,000. All right, well... That was all 30 years ago because today marks the 30th anniversary of Self-Aid, that day-long musical festival at the RDS, which was in fact inspired, of course, by the incredible Live Aid the previous year. Ireland's unemployment at the time was, as you heard, about 250,000. More importantly, it was 18.1% of the population. And at our worst, um, in the uh, most recent crisis, it was 14.6. Well, the two men who got the idea and uh, delivered it and organized it are with me in the studio. There were two RTE producers at the time. Um, Tony Boland and Niall Matthews, welcome to the program, gentlemen. 
Thank you, George. Uh, can I start with you, Niall? What was the genesis of the idea? How did it kind of come up? Well, we had been involved the previous year, in July of the previous year, in um, Live Aid. We were the two producers on Live Aid. And that, as you know, was very successful, and ha- as has been mentioned. And as a result of that, we were sort of throwing around ideas of what we might do next. And we wondered whether something similar could be applied to the world of work, the world of unemployment. And uh, we spent quite a lot of time sort of honing the idea. But basically, what we thought would work best was applying the principles and what had happened in Live Aid to, to self-aid. All right. Now, Tony, um, they, was it easy to get these bands? I mean, the one thing Geldof proved with Live Aid, I mean, it was, it was a new idea then. Yeah. So therefore, all these these major players were in. Yeah. Uh, you were coming up with the same idea a second time around. And the second time with anything is always harder, isn't it? Well, it's um, it certainly was a, a harder sell. Yeah. Um, but it was the first time that literally all the major, major rock stars that Ireland had from the seventies and eighties came together on one stage, and um, that in itself was a very unusual thing, because although we had recognised that um, you know Bono was a star, you two were just cresting the wave at that stage. Live Aid was really what broke them in Europe. Um, uh, We had Rory Gallagher. uh, We had uh, Van. uh, We had Elvis Costello, who uh, wanted was living in Ireland at the time and wanted to do it. His real name is Declan McManus. And his father was an Irish dance band leader in London. But no, the hardest sell we probably had... uh, was actually you too, getting them to do it because it was a big risk for them. They had just become huge internationally. And Niall is a good story about it, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we had to convince a lot of people that this was the right thing to do at this particular time. Right. Not least so you Richard. probably had to convince Paul McGuinness, presumably, who was manager of you two. So we, we headed out for what was probably the most important meeting we were going to have throughout all of this. We were to meet the four boys from U2 and Paul McGuinness and convince them that they should give us all the paraphernalia attached with putting on in a concert like this. That, that this was to be the only gig that they would do this year, that instead of making millions in Croke Park or wherever, that they should do this concert. So I see what a, you mean about a big sale. Yeah, yeah so <laughs> it, it was arranged for, say, 12 o'clock or something like that. Yeah. And Tony and myself popped out to Kalini, uh, knocked on the big gates. There was no answer. Uh, there were no mobile phones at the time. So we had to find some way of ringing Paul McGuinness and to find out that they were in the Edges place in Rathfarn. So we had to hightail it there. And we uh, we were confronted by five very sullen gentlemen with soup and with sandwiches. So I just took to eating my soup and sandwiches. And uh, Tony had the job of convincing them that, as I said, that this was the only gig that they should do. But you did a good job, Tones. Well, um, they were great. To be honest with you, they really, really did. They had done their research. They wanted all their questions answered. Um, and um, Paul joined in as well. And... 
they they really grilled us very hard because this was taking a big risk for them to get involved. Yeah, but uh, I'm with me are Tony Boland and Al Matthews who dreamt up uh, self-aid and made it work. But, but Niall, uh, the thing here is, like, McGuinness was the best thing that happened to you too because he made them. He was the manager. He made all these decisions. Now, interestingly, what we have in common is that I dealt with him in my catering days because I used to do all the catering in Crook Park for of you too. And I saw how good this guy was. Yeah. How much of a possibility was there, Niall, when you're sitting in Rathfarnham talking to them, that this could have been a disaster? I mean, was there was it always going to be a success or, or was there a possibility this might actually not be very good? Oh, I think so. Unless that meeting went well, then, uh, I mean, there could have been a huge question mark over it because we, we didn't know how to stage concert. We didn't know how to put up a revolving three-stage stage. Uh, we had none of that but once they got on board they came behind. The staging was theirs the sound was theirs, oh. the lighting was theirs. They got stuck into it completely. They really couldn't have done more. Harvey Goldsmith who was the guy who had st- staged Live Aid came over and brought the production team but it was Paul McGuinness who arranged that for us. Now Niall, the the point about this is that many of us who work in charity over the last number of years, particularly when there was a crisis, it's quite interesting when when you worked for a foreign charity, the people increasingly, as things were getting worse in Ireland, people were saying, I'm prepared to give money to an Irish charity. I'm not prepared to give money to a foreign charity. Understandably, you know, help our own was very much. And, And foreign charities had great difficulty. And many of them went under... This the great thing about this was all this money was going back to Ireland, was it? What were you all going to do with it? This mon- idea of self aid. What was that? Yeah, the, the, there, there were two prongs to it. One was that people could pledge jobs, and the second prong was that they could pledge money. Now, in pledging money, what they were doing, we 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 had set up a committee before then, which was. Um, which was composed of people from National Manpower, from the IDA, from SFADCO, from various government yeah. agencies. And they were obviously the official agencies that, that, that financed various projects in whatever way they could. But they had on their books a num- quite a number of projects that for one reason or another they couldn't finance. So we identified projects that w- with the help of this committee that um, were they to be given finance that they couldn't get from the state, that they would continue in existence or else create other projects which would give more employment. That was, sorry, George, that was the first thing. Just the second second one was pledging jobs. Now, we had a very, very clear definition of what exactly a job would be. It also couldn't be that you wanted a gardener for four hours. It had, again, to satisfy a number of conditions. And unless it did, we pleaded, we couldn't do anything else, we pleaded with people not to pledge jobs. But um, so there were those two prongs and, and throughout the, the day, over 1,000 jobs were pledged. Really? 1, and how much jobs, money? 1,000 jobs were pledged and all of these then were published in the national newspapers so that then once they were pledged and in the papers, they left us. There was nothing we could okay, do. It was, up it, to, yeah. it was up to people then to apply for them yeah. and, and get on with it. The money we raised over a million pounds which was a huge amount of money. At which the was time. a huge oh, amount. Thirty years ago, yeah, yeah. over a million pounds. We were surprised at that. I mean, I mean when it, you think it, of how much you paid for your house thirty years ago, yeah. 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 So then, we, what we had done was we had set up the self aid trust, 
with a board of trustees and it was the Selfate Trust that administered that £1 million by giving loans to all of those projects that we had identified previously to continue. And it was, it, 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 in each case it was a loan. They were to give it back so that if they got the benefit of it, would, it would go on and it would go on to someone else then after that. But 30 years later now, um, like do you, is there, is it like those sort of, um, the roots of those jobs starting in this glass house, if you like, that was self-aid. 30 years later now, in some ways, can you see that? Can you see the results of that? I, I get contacted from time to time yeah. by various companies. I was, at a, I was at something in the RDS about two months ago and a guy came up to me and, and he said, you know, um, during the self-aid concert, I got a small amount of money. I got £5,000 and it, it helped me get started with my local shop. I think he was from Clonmel. I couldn't be sure. And um, he said that got me off the ground. I couldn't get the money from the bank at the time. Um, and people forget how hard it was for a an ordinary person trying to start a business or get it off the ground in any small way. I mean, you must have known that yourself, George, with your oh, own I mean, business. absolutely. At that time, I mean, it was impossible. I, 86 was like when you looked at the interest rates we were paying, the mortgage rates we were paying, uh, the jobs. In many ways, I think that period, and it's difficult for many people listening to get a sense of it, like when you mention a million now, it's kind of a throwaway remark, yeah. but, but 30 years ago. People, it was, I think it was a lot worse than the most recent one because there were also less supports around then. There, there were more supports this time, I think. Yes, you know? there were. And also in between, um, a lot more supports had come into being, different ways of funding had come, all sorts of private funding. I mean, yeah. IT guys now go and just go to a, a show on the RDS go in fully expecting to make a pitch and a lot of them get their their businesses financed. Those days you couldn't go into a bank. Mind you, that happened again this time round. Yeah. But you couldn't go into a no, bank looking for a loan. No. Gentlemen, it's fantastic. I mean, it's great to remember it. Tony Boland and Niall Matthews, the RT, then RT producers, organised this extraordinary event 30 years ago. You didn't get approached to do one in this crisis, did you, Niall? No, no funnily enough. Funnily <laughs> enough. No. Yeah. We'll, there'll be another crisis, so we'll, we'll keep you in mind. Uh, what a great story. And uh, we've got Bono here for you talking at the event to close. I don't know what it's like to be out of work, what it's like to be unemployed. Since I was, I just don't know, you know, since I was 16, I got to join this group and I'm 26 now. I can't imagine what it must be like to stand in line week after week or to lose your job after 10 or 20 years or worse, never to even have had a job. I don't know what that's like, but there's others, there's you out there and a lot of you that know just what it's like. Well, let me say, this country belongs to you just as much as it belongs to RTE, just as much as it belongs to CIE or ESB or AIB or the Bank of Ireland.